following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Um, so yesterday, I attempted to make a fancy cheesecake that I saw on YouTube um, so that we could have it as a treat during the football game that Scott doesn't care about today. Um, it was like a really fancy cheesecake. It was, well, it was fancy. And I know that this sounds like I'm about to set up a hilarious disaster story, and you're all like looking forward to uh, reveling in my cheesecake downfall. But I actually think it came out pretty okay, with the disclaimer being that I haven't actually tasted it yet, because you need to chill that cheesecake 10 to 24 hours before cutting into it. But the reason I want to bring this up to you is because I found myself getting quite flustered during the process of making this cheesecake. Um, you know, the cheesecake was not soft enough. It's, it says right in the video, it needs to be aggressively room temperature, or it won't cream up properly. And then I like spilled some sugar out while I was trying to weigh it down to the gram, which is what you do when you're baking. You use a gram accurate scale for the ingredients, because baking is chemistry, and that matters. And then I, like, the cheese, cream cheese, some of the cream cheese went on the counter, and I was saying certain words, and very frustrated myself. I might have called myself an idiot. I might have used a modifier. <laughs> and f finally, <laughs> I'm not sure if it was out of love or just uh, fatigue. <laughs> Tracy came in and she's like, why are you so hard on yourself when you're cooking? It's really going fine. It's going to be good. Why don't you just try to enjoy the process a little bit more? Um, and I told her to get out and mind her own business. <laughs> no, no I, I mean, I really did take it to heart. That was kind of like my sermon and therapy for the week, but um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, although I think she meant the question rhetorically, and yes, she did mean it out of love. I'm just teasing about that other thing, but it was a rhetorical question. Why, do you, why are you so hard on yourself when you're cooking it? But for me, I actually think I know the answer. Um, I often know the answers to her rhetorical questions, which I'm sure is a great, a great source of joy in her life. Um, <laughs> But the answer is because I'm a rule follower, right? And I, I hear the other rule followers in the room, right? I am an instruction reader. I get so interested in the instructions that I, I actually get mad when they, like, they don't, they need a copy editor for these instructions. They could be written so much better and then a person like me would be so much better set up. Um, I, it's like classic firstborn stuff, right? Which, yes, I, yeah, I, need, I need therapy. <laughs> but I'm a rule follower. Anyway, speaking of cheesecake, does anybody know how bowling works? <laughs> bowling, you know, the, how does that work? I, this is not a rhetorical question, by the way. And I don't, I'm not asking for help with the incomprehensible scoring system. I just want, like, the basic point. Explain like I'm five. What is the point of bowling? Somebody shout it out, please. What do you, knock down the pins. Yes. Um, that is the point of bowling. By the way, who in the room has the highest bowling score? Anybody over 200? 
Woo, I see some hands. Anybody ever rolled a 300? <laughs> not, so, not so proud now, are you? <laughs> wow, 200, that's good. Anybody over 250? My goodness, whoa. Wow. I know who I'm going to when we start the artisan bowling team. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of bowling, I want to tell you about something that's coming up here at Artisan. Um, it's it's a, a new series that's coming up called What's Saving My Faith? Um, and it's going to be a, a non-contiguous series, which is to say, we're going to kind of stick it in here into the, into, the, into the normal flow of things at Artisan about once a month for probably most of this calendar year. What's Saving My Faith is a chance for uh, lay people at Artisan, which just means like the non-pastored, the non-pastor people, to come up here instead of me giving a sermon and to share what's happening in their life. What are the things that are helping them grow in their faith? or hang on to their faith for dear life, or find a new way of experiencing that which maybe they've known for their whole lives and, and had sort of lost some energy for. Um, the What's Saving My Faith series, uh, we have a few people lined up and, and some more po folks who are um, pondering it right now already, and I'm excited for what this is going to be, and it starts next week. Uh, Dan Gladding is gonna be our kickoff person. Um, so thank you, Dan, for being the, the guinea pig on this. Uh, and I encourage you not to miss this week. And if you can't be here, please listen after the fact on the podcast or watch the replay on Facebook. And whenever you see the What's Saving My Faith weeks coming up, I promise you um, they're going to be remarkable and wonderful and amazing. Um, so don't miss those. All right. Let's turn our attention to Scripture. Um, today's readings you may have noticed, have quite a lot to say about rules and how to follow them. So you might think they're right up my alley. <laughs> and in a way, they kind of are. I want to talk to you about a few of these passages and what they might mean for us. But first, I want to remind you that, as always, the context is going to tell us so much. That's how we're going to understand what they meant when they were written, and it's definitely how we're going to try to apply them to what they mean for us today and will mean for us in the future. So let's start with the passage from Deuteronomy. You heard this read earlier in the service, Deuteronomy 30. Um, and Moses is the, the speaker in this text. I don't know if it said that in the, in the verse that you actually read, but it's Moses talking to the people. And what he says to them is, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, Death and adversity. All right, this is a binary choice. Today's sermon, by the way, is entitled Life Beyond the Binary. Um, life and prosperity or death and adversity. Pick your poison. <laughs> he goes on to say, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, you'll live and become numerous. You'll receive God's blessing. But... If your heart turns away and you do not hear, and you're led astray to other gods and try to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. Right? So life and prosperity, death and adversity, those are the choices that Moses puts before the people. Right? How many of you have a religious framework that has that kind of 
binary choice. Um, for those who are not computer nerds or um, up to date on this, the way this word has uh, been applied to gender, uh, binary just means one or the other, off or on, either or. How many of you have a religious framework that's been, you know, that was very binary? Life or death, basically, yeah. It's, it's very, fairly common. Pretty clear choice that Moses puts before the people, after all. But I wonder, I deliberately didn't read these words when I reread the text, but I wonder if you noticed when the passage was read earlier, what the context of this passage is, what's happening in this story. There are hints of it in the passage itself, um, but you might also know what the whole book of Deuteronomy is about. What is going on in the life of God's people, the Israelites, when Moses gives this happy little sermon <laughs> that says you can choose life or death. Does anybody know? That's exactly right. They're on the edge of the promised land after the wandering. And Deuteronomy literally means the second law. It's the second giving of the law. They already received the law, and Moses on the cusp of the promised land says, you might want to sit down. This is going to take a few minutes. Here's the law again. And he basically says, uh, it's framed this way. You can obey God and live. You can worship other idols and disobey God and die. But I wonder if your understanding of that stark choice is informed at all by the fact that you now know, if you didn't before, that this is what Moses is saying to them right before they're about to enter into the promise that God has made to, to their ancestors, generations and generations and generations earlier, and right after they've spent 40 years wandering around, experiencing all kinds of hardship. Do you remember why they wandered around and, and experienced the hardship? They were not exactly obedient and trusting of God right when they started that journey, which came right after what? The enslavement of the people in, in Egypt. I'm tempted to say which came after what, but you get the point. This is the context of this very stark choice. They're on the cusp of the promised land. They've just been wandering for a whole generation. And by the way, he's acutely aware, he must be, that he's not going to be allowed to go in at all because of his own disobedience. I don't know if that softens the edge of that really pretty sharp, hard sermon that he gives, but I think it does give us a little bit of context. Maybe we can see why the choice that he presents to them is so stark with that in mind. All right, so that's from Deuteronomy. Uh, the lectionary also gave us something from Psalm 119 today, which we uh, heard at the call to worship, uh, which, by the way, took place at 10 a.m., which is the uh, stated start time of our service. Um, so six of you already know this, but what happens in Psalm 119 <laughs> is this. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the, the law of the Lord. Starts out like that and then it ends. I will observe your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Um, that's only a little part of Psalm 119, by the way. Psalm 119 goes on and on and on and on for 176 verses about how beautiful the law of the Lord is. Have you ever been tempted to write a 176-verse song about how beautiful um, the law of the Lord is? 
I haven't either. I think that we will probably not have access to this, that particular green room in heaven um, <clears throat> where all the musicians get to sit. But this whole idea about following the law of the Lord, being blameless, in the words of the psalmist, at least in this verse, as the way to prosperity and peace and success is really quite a a lovely idea, except that you might be tempted to ask, as I have often been tempted to ask, why are there so many demonstrable exceptions to this rule? Not only why are there so many people who seem to do everything right and according, with the, and according to the way they were taught and the way that the Sunday school teachers and the pastors instructed them who have so much misery in their lives, that would be bad enough. God, this is me addressing God. But why also do so many people who are demonstrably wicked have such good things going on in their lives? And if you've ever said those things, and then felt yourself like clamped down, like, oh no, I better not say that to God. Just know that there's all kinds of that language right there in the scriptures. In fact, like you don't have to go too many psalms away from this one to find multiple examples of the psalmist lamenting this terrible fact. I've done everything right and I'm, my bones are wasting away. My enemies are pursuing me. Why won't you save me? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the greedy continue to get so much? And when you spend too much time observing that reality, you maybe kind of come to the point of saying, like, should I believe Scripture at all? Because it says that happy are those whose way is blameless, but that's not been my experience, and I've seen all kinds of exceptions to that rule. Before you toss out the Bible, at least based on that observation, let me give you this key, which during my undergraduate studies unlocked this for me in a way that's been very helpful um, now for decades, because that's how old I am. <clears throat> I had an Old Testament teacher who taught something called the normal curve of human experience. Now, nobody gets graded on a bell curve anymore, I don't think, but you know what a bell curve is? It's kind of like the like real low down to the x-axis here. This is the extent of my math knowledge, by the way. And then it gets really, really high on the y-axis in the middle. And what a bell curve shows you is that most of the results of a given experience are in this part, in the middle. And then you have some exceptions way over on this side and some other exceptions way over on this side. But the normal curve of human experience, this professor taught me, is what's kind of being... Uh, put forth in these scripture texts that say happy are those whose way is blameless. Most of the time, you could sort of add to a text like that. The normal curve of human experience is that when you obey God, you experience things like life and prosperity, and when you disobey God, you experience things like uh, adversity and even death. Does that mean that that's always true? No. Does it mean that there are exactly opposite exceptions to the rule? Well, it, there sometimes are. So it's, maybe it's part of what, what our expectation of Scripture is when we read a text like this. By the way, it's a song. Like, Don't read too, too far into song lyrics. Um, but think if, if, if you're ever struggling with that, remember the normal curve of human experience and just add the word usually after those phrases. It might help a little bit. 
All right, so we've looked at Deuteronomy, we've looked at Psalms, but we need to get Jesus' take on this, always, right? Why do we always need to get Jesus' take on this? Well, because we are uh, Christian people. This is the framework of Artisan Church. If you are not one of those types of people, we're so glad that you're here um, and hope that your experience has been positive and this maybe is just a way of expressing what our framework is and perhaps it's something that becomes interesting to you, I don't know. But uh, in the book of Hebrews, which is part of the Christian scriptures, despite the fact that it's called Hebrews, that can be confusing sometimes, it starts out by saying, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. By the way, Moses was one of those prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, S-O-N, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He, and here he means Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so if you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. When I use the phrase, the word of God, I'm almost never talking about the Bible. I'm talking about Jesus, because Jesus is the primary word of God. We have the words of Scripture, which are also very important. But let us never place the Bible over the person of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. And so what does Jesus have to say about the law of Moses? Well, as I said 20 minutes ago, there's kind of a lot there, isn't there? He says, you have heard it said to those of ancient times, A, B, and C. But I say to you, X, Y, and Z. And sometimes when he makes this move, he seems to be making things simpler and easier. And sometimes when he makes this move, he seems to be making them way more difficult, way more strict. By the way, you, you heard approximately 15 verses from Matthew 5 earlier, but that, that little chunk of Scripture goes on a little farther. And I apologize, I didn't ask the tech folks to put this on the screen, but I'm going to read you a few more verses from Matthew 5, because I think some of the best parts are the parts that come after this. They're still in that form, you have heard it said, ABC, but I say to you, XYZ. It starts in um, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. By the way, there was some talk about lawsuits just a few verses earlier. huh? I wonder if those are connected. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also, also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, by the way, I'm pretty sure that's not actually in the law of Moses. Um, but probably the people had still heard that said. <laughs> but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. By the way, do you remember the normal curve of human experience? Seems like sometimes um, wicked people get to see the sunrise too. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so at the end of the little chunk, we get to the real point, which apparently is that perfection is the standard. Almost feels like a setup, doesn't it? <laughs> but my inspired Bible says that that's the end of the chapter. And so we stop there. But you know by now, don't you, that, that the chapters and the verses aren't part of the original text? Those are there for our convenience, and sometimes for our inconvenience. The thought doesn't necessarily stop when the chapter stops. And so I wonder if the beginning of chapter 6 is more connected to the end of chapter 5 than you might be in, inclined to think. What he goes on to say... Really, it's the, literally the next word, but there's just a number in front of it that makes us think it's, it's different, a different topic, is beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. He goes on to say, whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. They're, they've received their reward in full, he says, which is like they got what they wanted, which is to be seen. He says, do not heap up empty phrases when you pray. Instead, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I said the Lord's Prayer a minute ago. See, this is part of what I was trying to teach last week in the sermon, uh, How to Read the Bible, which was maybe a slightly ambitious topic for one sermon. It's not necessarily enough to stop at the end of the chapter. You can't claim to understand what, has just, what you've just read unless you kind of see what happens before and after it. In this case, it's very interesting that what comes right after that um, apparent requirement for perfection is an admonishment against performative Holiness. <laughs> that was my nickname in high school, by the way. <laughs> performative holiness. Here comes old performative holiness again. By the way, this check the next chapter thing also works in the book of Romans, specifically chapter 1 and chapter 2. Some of you are probably quite familiar with the end of Romans chapter 1 because it's very often quoted usually by people who really desperately want to tell others how to live their lives and have a spiritual reason for doing so. Just to remind you, uh, and hopefully not to trigger you, it says, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Right. If our Zoom meeting wasn't password protected, there'd probably be somebody who had quoted that exact verse earlier when I said the thing that I said. But what happens in Romans chapter 2, and this is not the sermon, but I need to say it anyway, is that you begin to realize that Paul seems to have set a trap for his readers, and he springs that trap in verse 1 of chapter 2, right after this business of they deserve to die. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. 
I encourage you, if you need to do this, to memorize Romans, or Romans 2, 1 and 2. Just, it's not that many words. Just memorize it and then use it in the future when someone quotes Romans 1, 27, or 28 at you. And in the case of Matthew chapter 5, as we come to the end of that chapter, there's so many things going on in that string of teachings that go, you've heard it said this, but I say that. There's a, perhaps a specific meaning in, in all of that for us, right? By the way, I, I, pretty much everybody here has both hands and both eyes. So um, I'm just going to go with you must have never done any of the things that Jesus mentioned in that text. One thing that you might consider, which maybe you haven't before when you've heard this passage taught, and nobody ever preached this to me, is that whatever your interpretation of those rules ends up being, what you absolutely must not do is follow those rules performatively and burden others with your personal definition of holiness with such self-assurance that it must apply to all people. But if you're confused and overwhelmed by uh, all of this, and it's quite normal, I think, to look at a passage like Matthew 5 and be confused and overwhelmed, you could look to a much simpler teaching of Jesus, which is that when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment, you know what he said. He said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. And there's a second one that's a lot like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. I love to point out, by the way, that that verse comes from a Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus 19, which comes, I'm pretty sure, right between Leviticus 18 and 20. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. Anyway, Jesus goes there when asked about the greatest commandments. Right? Love God and love others. That's the summary of the law. In fact, he says all of the law and prophets hang on these two laws. In other words, if you can get these two right, you will get it all. You'll get it all. And in case you happen to think, not that anybody would say this, uh, that that was just like the hippie Jesus in a moment of weakness, forgetting himself. And don't forget what he said in Matthew 5, pluck your eye out. Um, you can also look to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, a man with an almost pathological lack of chill. <laughs> Who said in Romans 13 essentially the same thing. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. All of the commandments are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, the really interesting thing is that most of us, even those of us who would say, yes, I love that so much, most of us don't actually want that. Most of us actually want the rules to follow. We just want them to be a little bit different. <laughs> most of us would prefer a set of clear and specific rules that just so happen to be tailored to the way of life that comes most naturally to us. Rules that are easy for us to follow, and it's a real shame that someone else has trouble following them, but how fortunate for us that the rules happen to line up with um, exactly what we're already doing. This, by the way, is why so many insufferable uh, conservative fundamentalists turn into insufferable progressive fundamentalists. 
I know that's sometimes made a false equivalency, and I don't, I don't want to do that exact thing, but you do know that sometimes um, there's a legalism that comes into play, uh, and it's, it's almost like the legalism is the innate state, and the specific rules, just kind of whatever happens to be on our mind at a given season of our life. We want rules, but we want them to be easy to follow. And this, by the way, is why I beat myself up when I'm following a cheesecake recipe and I get one little detail wrong. I think that the whole thing is destined to, well, burn. But when it came to the cheesecake, I did my best, came out pretty good, and if I ever do it again, I'll do it better. I learned something along the way. And speaking of cheesecake, how come when I asked you about bowling, None of you told me that the point of bowling was to avoid the gutter. You explained it to me like I was five years old. You roll the ball and try to knock down the pins. What happens if you miss the pins and it goes in the gutter? You get the ball back. <laughs> and you get to go again. I mean, a certain number of times. <laughs> Nobody's going to put you on the wall if you don't bowl a 300. No one's going to kick you out of the bowling alley if, if it goes in the gutter a few times, or even most of the time. And if you keep working at it, you will knock more pins down in the future. My goodness, it's 1120. I've finally come to the, the point of my sermon. <laughs> this is what I want to say to you about Jesus. Rather than giving us a life that is defined by negative consequences. What I believe Jesus gives us is an infinite palette of possibility for success in the law that matters, which is the law of love. I'm not saying that nothing matters. I'm not saying that there's no rule that you must follow or ought to follow or should try to follow. That's not what I'm saying at all. Do you see me? That's not what I'm saying. But I do wonder, though, if, if the rules that we are to follow are actually more about wholeness and flourishing as opposed to judgment and punishment. And if that's the case, then I'm, I'm actually interested in following those rules. It also doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Just because there's only two rules that encompass all the other ones doesn't mean that it's easy. It's hard to love people. Have you met people? They're awful. <laughs> Not you people. I mean those people. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So then, how will you love today more than yesterday? Who will you love today more than yesterday? When will you love today more than yesterday? And why will you love today more than yesterday? Because God loved you first. And there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends.
This is what Jesus did. Laid down his life for all of humanity, his friends. And so I'm going to invite you to come and take communion because it is a sacramentalization of that laying down of life. It is a memorialization of that laying down of life. It is a remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection, of his body, which was broken for you, of his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so I invite you to come to the table and receive this sacrament. You don't have to be a member here or anywhere. You simply ought to be seeking to follow Jesus. Uh, Aim for the pins, if you will, and it's okay if you end up in the gutter. Hi. Uh, There's... Bread, it's all gluten-free. You can dip it in the wine or the juice. Be, be wise and careful about what you choose. And then there's um, the packets that are sealed at the back of the table if you need those as well. Come through the middle. Go back to the sides. We're going to continue to sing together while we take communion. And so if you respond to Jesus' invitation to his table for his friends, our table's open for you now. And come if you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.